You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. Good morning. How are we doing today? Well, good. It's good to have you all here on this lovely Father's Day. I don't know if you all have ever noticed, but when people cluster for food or drink, the pecking order becomes visible. Think back to a time when you were in the school cafeteria growing up, or if it's a little more recent for you, think about a work lunch break. You know your place by how many people look up and they'll smile, call out your name, wave, and say, come sit with us, come eat with us. Or think about a wedding. When we first get there, we're in the ceremony, and there's a little separation with the groom's side and the bride's side and the parents up front, but you can't quite tell who's who until you get to the reception, and it all becomes clear. We've got our bridal party front and center, and sometimes even the bride and groom have their own separate table, and they're set apart from the rest of the bridal party. And then we've got his best friends and her best friends and the close uh, family that lives nearby that were in our lives a lot, and then the work friends. Work friends always make it up to the front because you hang out with each other so frequently. And then you go back to the next tier, getting into, you know, maybe some college or high school friends that you feel like you should invite, maybe some of your parents' friends that you don't really know, or extended family. And then we get to the very back. And this is what I lovingly call the rando misfit table. It is though, it's a bunch of randoms. It's all the people that you were like, well, you know, they're friends of mine. I kind of want them to be there, but I don't really know where they plug in and they're not front and center. And so there they are in the back. The good news about this table, and I've actually been at this table many times. I either tend to be the bridal party or the misfit. I'm never in between. I'm one or the other. And the good thing about this table is that you can stuff your face full of food because nobody's paying attention to you. You can keep going in line and When you're bored, you can sneak out and nobody knows because nobody's looking at you. So why do we do this to each other? In many ways, it is simple human socializing because we want to be near people that we know, people that we have things in common with. This this is simple socializing. The problem comes when we begin to take these similarities and we create groups and we say, well, this group with these things is a little better than that group with those things. And this group is a little more desirable. And a wedding is a pretty mild experience of this because it's only a few hours and most of us don't know each other anyway, so it's no big deal. But a school cafeteria can be downright malicious because we spend day after day after day over months solidifying these groups and these hierarchies. Some of these tables I've discovered become malicious with the people too, practically screaming at me when I walk by that I'm a reject and to keep on walking to another table. And it can feel good when we are on the inside, when we are at the best friend's table or the cool kid's table. But I'm sure at some point, each one of us have been on the outside maybe more times than we can count. What if though, 
this is my question. What if there really isn't an inside or an outside? What if there is only one side and we've been so busy trying to figure out where do we fit that we never realize that all of us fit? Let's read together our scripture. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Great. That was John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. Jesus made a big mistake. He sat down at the wrong table. Remember the table at the back of the wedding near the trash cans? Well, in the eyes of the Jews, that table was Samaria. Samaritans were the outcasts. They had been labeled as a hybrid race of compromise. You see, in northern Israel, where the Israelites lived, the Assyrians had come in and and, uh, captured them. And some of the Jews remained behind to intermarry with those pagan Assyrians. And this became the blended people of Samaria. So talk about sellouts who sleep with the enemy. These are the offspring of of political and religious betrayers who bought into idolatrous paganism so big that they birthed babies from it. That's a pretty big buy-in. So Jews didn't talk to Samaritans and Samaritans didn't talk to Jews. And in this story of the outcast, we have this Samaritan woman standing before Jesus with her face literally screwed up in a ball and a giant question mark above her head as she asks, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? What is even happening here? So Jesus not only sat down at the wrong table, now he thought he could engage in crosstalk. Big sticky stuff going on here. And we don't do this now at all, do we? We never see this. If there is anything that COVID taught me is that this is alive and well. 
We had mask wearers versus non-mask wearers, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, and I won't make you read between the lines. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats. And we have this race of people versus that race of people, this side of town versus that side of town, Catholics versus Protestants, and in this season, even these Methodists versus those Methodists. You name it, we can find a way to make it an us versus them. Now, in high school, it was much more simple than all of this. It was sort of just the haves and the have-nots. So the 1990s, when I was a teenager, there were those Timberland leather boots that were the bomb.com. Every girl had to have one. And you really knew who the in-girl was because they would have the most recent Clinique makeup bag. I don't know if you all remember them. But they were amazing, and all the girls' faces would drain of color and be like, oh, you got the new bag. And then, of course, the extremely expensive lucky jeans. And I was a have-not. I did not get to have these things. I think I got one Clinique bag, and it was because my mom felt sorry for me. But I didn't learn, even as the outcast, even as the have not, I didn't learn because what I did is I created my own categories. Well, fine, you can be the haves, but there are the smart girls and there are the not smart girls. There are the good Christian girls and there are the bad girls. And I began to say, well, I can't be seen with those duds. And then fast forward to my 20s, I decided to try on a new category and I ditched the Christian good girl and I went for the bad girl. And so you see, we get to do this. We get to take them on and off. I'll be this group now and that group later. But when you switch sides, suddenly the other one's the bad side, even though you were over there just before. And so even as Christians who are called to love, we are still looking for who is a us and who is a them. Think about it. If you have these phrases lingering in your life and they sound a little something like this, ha, did you just see that mess walk by? You wouldn't see me. Never, ever looking, living, wearing, driving, thinking, believing that. And my personal favorite at voting time is, can you believe they believe that? So if you have some of this lingering, you probably also have some us versus them mentality somewhere in there. And you guys, it feels good, especially if you can get a good cackle in there and the right delivery, it feels good until you become the that. And believe me, you are a them to somebody else's us, no matter how good you think you are. Now, when the cool kid sits at the reject table, there is normally a little hopefulness that the cool will rub off, like, they just sat with us. Scoot a little closer and we're gonna get some cool points right now. Watch this happen. And we see it over and over again in in movies and TV shows. They replay it. We start with the disheveled, kind of awkward, dorky girl. And then the prince comes in and he's just trying to fight off the oppressive powers of the royal hood that keeps him in line. And in all of her awkward geekiness, he falls for her. And then it builds to the mind-blowing moment when all of his status rubs off on her and transforms her into the beauty we all knew she really was. 
It happens over and over again. And now they kind of recycle it a little bit more. Sometimes it's the woman who gets to come in and save the man, but it's always the outcast who gets brought in by somebody else's status. And so like the disheveled girl in all of our movies and TV shows, we have our Samaritan woman, and she is of a different sort. Let's begin with the fact that she's a woman. In this day and age, just being female, you're already in the outcast category. So she's already found her way there. She doesn't even have to search that hard to make her way to outcast. And on that day that Jesus meets her, he's been uh, journeying from Judea, a good 60-mile trek to Samaria and he is sitting tired by the well. It's the sixth hour of the day. I want y'all to envision this. It's noontime and the heat is starting to rise. We're coming into the heat of the day. Now it wasn't customary for a woman to come alone. alone. Normally it'd be a gaggle of women, a whole group coming, giggling and talking amongst each other as they make their way to the well. And they'd come at the early hours or the evening hours because who's gonna give themselves more work to draw water in the heat of the day? Well, our woman has. She's come alone and she's come in the heat of the day. So we ask ourselves why? Well, you see, even within her own society, she is an outcast. Now, we didn't read it today in our scripture. It happens a few verses later, but she continues her conversation with Jesus. And we learn that she's had not one, not two, not three, but five, you guys, five men in her life. And that has brought ridicule on her from all of the others. And so here we have it. We have this outcast times three, a woman, a Samaritan, and now a Samaritan woman who has been around the block a few times. So Jesus, he's not even at the rando misfit table anymore. He's gotten up, made his way through the kitchen, back into the alley behind the venue, and he's hanging out with the people who weren't invited. That's where Jesus has found himself. And as we see this, well, she's an outcast of the outcasts of the outcasts. So even the outcasts have a hierarchy in us versus them, which takes us to a deeper reality that by this model of human interaction, we are all outcasts because we are all still trying to show what it is that sets us apart. There never really truly is a top. There is only ever new criteria, new crowds, and then we create a new us and a new them. So here this woman is, an outcast time three, times three at the well, and she is laying out the pecking order to Jesus, you all. Like, really, woman, you're already on the bottom. You don't need to show off. There's nowhere else for you to go. And then at each turn, Jesus, he begins to invite her to a new reality. He doesn't pay attention to her as she lays these things out to him. So he comes to her first and foremost just by speaking to her. That changes her reality. And she's like, what? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are we talking? And Jesus continues unfazed and she doesn't get it. He starts talking about living water and she starts to think, well, maybe he's trying to counter serve or I don't know what's going on. And so she, she comes back at him, dude, you don't even have anything to draw water with. You are standing at a well empty handed. And Jacob, Jacob himself, came to drink from this well. Are you greater than Jacob? And better yet, Jacob's animals came and drank from this well. Are you better than Jacob's animals? I don't think so. So why are you talking about this living water? 
And Jesus, again, unfazed, continues and says, drink from this well and you're going to keep being thirsty. Drink from the living water I can give you and you will never thirst again. And that, you all, is what finally gives her pause. And so like the Samaritan woman, we ought to pause and wonder. We may have something in our hands to draw water with, but how deep is the well that we're drinking from? The well may be deep, as the woman says it is, though we know that it can and likely will eventually run dry, with our thirst only ever temporarily satisfied. Now, in preparation for today, I was hanging out by a pool with my friend, and I had, I had been working on this teaching already, and I was only about 700 words in, y'all. I'd done my research. I'd drawn my little flow charts. Y'all should see me. I get arrows going all over the place connecting things. And so I was still working with big concepts, big ideas, and my friend made the mistake of saying, so what you writing on? And I began to rattle it out to her, all these ideas of all the human problem of creating outcasts. And listening to me, they finally said, can't we just be nice and do our best? And when the friend said this, I could hear the exasperation and the overwhelm. And it stayed with me ringing in my ears and it brought me a sense of sadness And then the mantra began to play in my head. It's a mantra that many of us have already going. What more do you want from me? I am already doing my best. And so I began to sat with it and see it. All of you people, everybody around me, being nice and doing their best. And my heart longed for this to be true. Lord, that this would be all that it takes only there was something important that I couldn't remove from the scene. And that was that the people were all still standing holding a water jar, thirsty. You see, some of these water jars, they were ornate and gorgeous. Some of them were big and some of them were tiny. Some of these jars were broken and leaking. Some jars were of the most current fashion and some people didn't have a jar at all. Some people began to notice that maybe we could share jars with those who didn't have one, while others were so busy showing off their jar that they didn't even notice that people didn't have one. And so then standing there holding their jars, they all began to come around the well to get their water. Only as they came around it, they realized there's not enough room for us all to fit. We can't all get our water at once. And so then this began to poke at their hearts with fear that maybe they wouldn't get anything at all. And so some began to say we should do our best and be nice by letting those that have the small jars or the broken jars go first. I mean, they're not going to take too much water anyways. Or those of you who have so many jars, why don't you give it to those who don't have any and we can let them go first. While others began to say, I have already done my best. That's why I have a jar in the first place. And so if you all knew what the right and nice thing to be is, is that you would let me go first since I've already worked so hard. And so as the people began to say this to each other, all the discussion grew into arguing and bartering until the line began to form 
and the hierarchy began to show itself. Some in fear or greed began to hoard the water with their big jars and mini jars, and some found that they remained with nothing to draw water with. And with all these people and all these jars, everyone showed up saying that they had done their best and that they were being and doing what they thought was nice. And so stepping forward one by one, dipping their jar into the well, hoping it hadn't run out just yet, knowing it wouldn't be long before they'd be thirsty again. And so then among this, I saw myself standing at the well and no one else was around. And I stood before the Lord asking, so what now? This is a mess. And I realized that as I stood there, a jar was in my hand. And like the woman at the well who heard the words of Jesus, these same words began to speak to me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. You see, I knew the lies of trying to buy the big jug or the fancy jar or the mini jars and that it would never bring me the happiness that it said it would. And so I had stopped all that business a long time ago. I knew the truth of the outcast and I didn't want to make someone else an outcast at my expense. So I had learned to move to the back of the line. I had learned to stop trying to get people to recognize me in the hopes that I wouldn't be the outcast. And when, inevitably, I forget these things and mistakenly throw an elbow at my neighbor, the truth of these things were close enough in my heart that I would remember who God is and who he calls me to be. But as I stood there holding a jar, I realized just that. I was still holding a jar. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is before you, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. When we are connected to the source of living water, it springs forth within us, overflowing to others. Verse 14 says that the water that I shall give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This isn't the type of water we drink when our mouth is dry. This is the type of water we drink when the longing of our soul cries out out for satisfaction and safety. And it is that soul cry that drives us to the front of the line and creates an outcast of someone else. Halamai is the Greek word used here for welling, and it means to jump up, to leap, to gush, to spring up. So imagine you are at the well, you are doing your best, you are trying to be nice, but your soul is dry, your mouth is dry, and the people around you say that the well is also running dry. And you remember the days when things weren't so bad. If only someone would give you a drink. And so in this place, in this time of drought, you are the outcast. And we've all been here at some point in our life. But the Lord says, even as your mouth remains dry, I will give you life such that your soul will leap. It will gush. It will spring forth. All you need do is ask. Sir, the woman at the well says, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. 
we can see that what we're doing isn't working. And regardless of why, many of us are still holding a jar waiting for our turn. And I believe that we're gonna hold many jars across our lifetime because it can be anything that we cling to, our livelihood, our happiness, our self-madeness, buying into what culture says, beliefs or identities that we align outside of God, the things we own or want to own, and the realities and hardships of living through a pandemic. You name it, it might become your jar. And in any of these things, we drink from a well that runs dry. If you're stuck in this place and wondering, so what now? This is a mess. The answer is to recognize the gift of God that can well up, bringing with it life eternal, to hear the still small voice and then ask, Lord, give me this living water so that I don't have to thirst like this anymore so that I am no longer a slave coming back day after day to draw on something that only goes dry. The woman heard the truth in Jesus, and that is what she did. She asked, and then you all, she left that jar by the well. The outcast woman went into the city who had, that had rejected her to share the truth with others. Jesus, who did not care what the people thought about her or the unseemly things she had done, came and sat at her table sharing life. And because she did this, she heard truth. And from this truth, those same people that rejected her began to hear and believe it too, seeing with new eyes and loving with new hearts. That well of life sprung up in her and flowed out to others as she realized that it was a game that she had been playing and she didn't have to anymore. In this truth, we are God's family, adopted into love, deeply forgiven and spilling over. And if we stop playing the game, what we learn is that there is no inside, there is no outside, there is only God's side. And just like that, the social hierarchies fall apart that hold us in our heart. So you'll still probably find, even as you come into this truth, it's not as if worldwide suddenly all of this changes because you'll probably still find yourself at the rando misfit table and the back of the wedding reception from time to time. Or you'll discover that you've picked up yet another jar along the way. Though the truth of God's kingdom remains and you also might find yourself at the reject table to let a little life rub off on someone else who needs to hear it. Jesus came for the outsider, and that outsider is each one of us, not one of us greater than the other. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, I am in awe of who you are, your greatness, your glorious majesty, and then you come and humble yourself before us as we spit in your face so often. So Lord, I humble myself before you, thanking you for your witness and thanking you for your love. And I just ask that your spirit would pour out amongst these people, that they would learn to hear the lies, the lies that tell them that this is how it has to be when you're telling us that you've already set us free. All we need to do is ask. So, Lord, I pray over each one of these people that your spirit would pour into their hearts 
that they might become an overflowing fountain and well of love grounded in you.